You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 277 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Finally, the last episode for 2020, the top 10 podcast for Australian accountants. As before, the list is not ranked, so number one is not better than number five, etc. And of course, the list is not impartial, but personal. It is what I and a few of your fellow accountants think will give you great insights. Last year was the first time we did the top 10 list. So for this second list now for 2021, we had to decide whether we cover a podcast twice or possibly revisit a podcast we already covered last year or whether... We don't do that and give you a fresh list. And we decided to give you a fresh list. So no podcast we listed for 2020 will appear in the list for 2021. Because our list is just food for thought anyway. It is not an updated ranking. So for the 2020 list, please go back to episode 213 and listen to our review of some really outstanding podcasts. They are still around apart from number one from the trenches sadly has bitten the dust but all the others are still going strong so here are the top 10 podcasts for australian accountants in 2021 five accounting podcasts two podcasts about economics and finances one podcast about australian politics one about financial fraud and then at the very end one podcast just for fun to have a really good laugh Hopefully. So without further ado, here are the top 10 podcasts for Australian accountants in 2021. Podcast number one. Ladies and gentlemen, it's with my pleasure that I welcome you back to Talking Numbers, our podcast for the accounting industry. My name is Paul Jans, just in case you have forgotten it. Talking Numbers is hosted by Paul Jans. Paul interviews specialists around practice management processes and tech. But Talking Numbers has been a series that I hope all of you have really enjoyed. You know, it's where I bring together some amazing guests from our accounting industry, share their stories, and more importantly, hope to provide a little bit of education to all of you and some learning mechanisms that you can take away. Let me share a cut from a recent episode about proactive leadership with you. Here's Paul talking with Stan Corner. I'm sitting in my office one day um, and I had a question. So being the person or fellow that I am, I stood up out of my office, walked out to um, the reception desk to talk to um, Meg, our receptionist. On arrival, um, this is what I, what I found. Now, I'm pretty certain anyone listening to this today will be able to recognise and associate this to their own business. So on approach, I could see that uh, Meg was on the phone. So I thought, oh, she won't take long. She'll pass that call on, so I'll just wait. So while I'm waiting, I'm standing and watching. And what I saw is that she's typing an email to one client while talking to yeah. another client. <laughs> right. So while we all sort of laugh just as you did, um, and you go, why would you do that? Um, I, I think it's a reality, partly because yes. there's pressure yes. to deliver. Um, uh, yeah. For years, we've been told that multitasking is the new everything, right? So I patiently waited. And when Meg's got off the phone, I, I said to her, hey, Meg's, by the way, forgetting the question I had, um, I said, Meg, tell me, 
what what I just saw here was you're talking to one client while you're typing an email to another. You do know that the client that you're talking to on the phone, they knew you were not totally present with them. And that, I'm not sure that that's the, the five-star customer experience that we want to deliver. Anyway, she looked at me um, with that look, yep, as if to say, come on, Stan. <laughs> exactly. And here's what she said to me, Stan, if I don't multitask, I don't keep up with my work. So, um, you know, this is the only way we, we get stuff done here. Now, being um, a good listener, I listened. I recognised that uh, I had been put in my place. So I turned around and went back to my office. Um, sat down and I started thinking about it. And, and what struck me is that two things. The first one is the customer experience bothered me. But what bothered me more is I've got a team member that is saying to me, I'm overworked, I'm overstretched, and I'm struggling to deliver what you want me to do. So um, I thought about this a little bit, and I, I really worked yeah. out that what we had to do is we had to redesign this so that uh, each team member could deliver that customer experience. What I really worked out is I needed to take away some of the mundane tasks um, highly repeatable tasks that um, could be done um, some other way. I play in the technology space, so look towards technology. Um, I also knew that that wasn't just a simple answer. So what we applied, interestingly, was the same process that I applied in our service delivery. So it was looking about, looking to what we actually want to really deliver and then looking at how we go about it. So we undertook this process and this process we called uh, eliminate, automate and outsource. Now, we'll probably talk, you'll, you'll ask me some more questions about that. But it, I was going to say, I was going to ask you about that because I've heard you talk about that. Yeah. So let me explain the outcome and then I'll talk about the process. Yeah. Good, so good. the outcome was day one, I've got my receptionist typing an email and talking to a client and telling me to go back to my office because I'm out of place putting pressure on her to do something, right? Because she's overworked. Um, it took three or four months to undertake this process. And within a month or so, this is what changed. I had the same person come to my door and ask me for five minutes. Um, now, as business owners, we always worry when we hear that. But this was one seriously joyous moment. Because what she said to me is, Stan, can you find more for me to do because I no longer have enough work? Mm. So um, I think light bulb moment. So now yes. what, what took place from here is a whole bunch of things, but that is effectively where business automation works was born. Interesting. Interesting. You just triggered something in me and I'm going to share with our listeners as well that um, um, oh, I'm trying to think of how, how old I was, but it was two, it was 1999. I commenced at a company. It was a fairly large company, $50 million business, 50 staff. Um, I went in there as their, as their GM. And one of the lessons I learned and funnily, funnily enough, one of the things I've just come off, uh, a virtual lunch where one of the things that the, the speaker was talking about, I was interviewing him and he was saying, uh, mentors and how important mentors are and leaders are and. One of the great things that I've picked up, and that's why I want to share this with you, because it resonates so much with what you just said then, 
And that is one of the key things that I used to make sure the first hour of my calendar every single day was to lead or manage, depending whether you're a leader or a manager, and they're two different roles, is, is, is to lead by walking around. Yeah. Okay. And you don't get to do, for those of you that are listening, you don't get to do and listen to what Stan just said unless you actually do that. And you are just just in the moment, you are present. He made a very key key point there. You're, you're present. And you're actually walking around and listening to what's going on and you're seeing what's going on. Rather than sitting in your office and being quite reactive to processes, you can actually be proactive mm-hmm. by going, hmm, I just picked up something there that it may not be in line with our five-star service, but let me delve a little bit deeper into why that's taking place. Correct. And then you can proactively make a change to it. So this was the Talking Numbers podcast, number one. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Talking Numbers. It's something that I've certainly loved and enjoyed doing, just chatting and peeling back the little bits of the individuals as well as the companies that continue to add value. We hope you enjoyed that episode and look out for our next episode coming to you soon. Podcast number two. You're listening to Transform Your Profits. The podcast for accountants who want to build a more profitable, successful, and impactful accounting firm. Your host is Reza Huda, a practice owner, mentor, and coach to accounting firm owners. Now, when you hear this intro, you might get the completely wrong idea. This podcast is actually very different to the American hyper voice you hear in the intro. Hi there. Welcome to today's podcast where I have interviews with other accountants who are doing some great things. Transform Your Profits is hosted by Reza Huda, a UK-based mentor and coach for accountants. So we can learn how to build more profitable, successful and impactful accounting firms. And Reza Huda has a very different style to what the intro to this podcast might suggest. Tell us a little bit, firstly, as a bit of an intro in terms of when you started your firm, um, yeah, your story kind of going back to when you first kick things off and we'll take it from there. Reza runs his interviews as webinars where his students can send questions in. Someone's asking here and Carol is asking a couple of final questions. Here. Here's a cut from his interview with Carl Reed of DNT Chartered Accountants in the UK. Niching your accounting practice. Uh, so, talk to me about when, whether DNT was already established as a niche provider. I, I think franchising is, is your niche. Was it already established as such, or did it evolve over time? And you know, what is your advice for other firms who are not quite there with niching, and and why they should consider it? Sure. Okay. So, uh, no, it wasn't already there. Um, but I'm going to answer first, so that people don't switch off whilst I'm talking about how to do it, I'm going to answer the why you should do it first, if that's okay. Um, And it's an absolute no-brainer. You must do it. Ignore the... I'm going to use a very friendly term here uh, that might seem disparaging, but the idiots who (laughs) say you shouldn't niche um, just to get airtime and contribute to a conversation because it makes no logical sense whatsoever not to niche. Um, Look, any business has a definition of what what their who their customer is um, now that definition might be wide it might be narrow but quite frankly if if you feel that you can sell anything to anyone 
and you genuinely mean that, if you genuinely think that you can serve a taxi driver in the same way that you can serve Apple or Google as a client, then you're deluded because you, you just can't and no business can. If you take, yeah, let, let's say Debenhams, they have a certain demographic that they see as their customer. It might be a wide demographic, but they have a demographic, they have a product range. You wouldn't go into Debenhams to buy, I, I don't know, a hammer and some spanners. You'd go to B&Q. So you, you have, every business has a definition of who their customer is, what their product is, that product market fit. And it's just, the conversation is more about how tight you define it, um, whether you go hyper-defined like we did at first, or whether you have a more general niche. So yeah, so first of all, don't switch off at the word niche. Everyone's got a niche. You, you know deep down you've got a niche, even though you might think that you're not a niche firm. Um, there is the fear of many firms that if they niche, they're going to have to turn away customers and so on. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Um, so the two niche markets that we've had. The first one was kind of there when I joined DNT, but it wasn't identified as a niche. It wasn't big enough to take forward as a niche at that point. Um, and that was the martial arts schools. And that is what I would call a micro niche. So you've got a niche market. Um, and in that world, that niche market could be education businesses. And then a micro niche is the next layer down where you really refine who it is that you serve. And for me, I'm a huge fan of micro niches. I know most firms aren't. And this is where I agree that there's more of a debate to be had about whether, for example, you should focus on medical businesses or whether you should focus on vets who've got locum staff members. Um, I would be the one who would focus on vets with locum staff members, but many firms will just focus on medical because they feel they need a bigger market. Mm. Um, in our experience, we, certainly with martial arts, um, the total addressable market, we believe the contribution to GDP in that world was 25 mil. Um, we believe that the addressable market for us, so that is the businesses that saw themselves as businesses rather than hobby clubs and that had a turnover of over 50 grand, um, we believe that there was maximum 500 in the country. And the way that we saw it was that, um, you know, if we could, if we can get 20% of them, that's a good slab of clients. Um, we actually got to 250 and we realized that our predictions on addressable market and so on were totally wrong. And it was actually a smaller market than we expected. And I said, why aren't you niching? Uh, you know, most firms have got five or 10 clients in, in an industry that the accountant enjoys working within. You know, they're people like them, they radiate the same energy and so on. Um, for me, with martial arts school owners, they were, and this sounds horrifically offensive to say this, but it, it's true. They were blokes who were my age to 10 years older. So I naturally resonated with them more than I would maybe a 70 year old chairman of a limited company who always has to wear a suit and tie. So I, I had more rapport with them quite naturally. Um, I quite enjoyed the fact that they were into their personal development and I was too. So there was a natural area of conversation outside of business. Um, I found it quite cool what they were doing. You know, I, I've, I'm not a martial artist, but I found it really cool that, uh, you know, the stuff they were doing and the, the change that they could affect in kids, most importantly. So there was just a natural resonance between me and the clients. Um, how we then, so that was kind of how we identified the niche, how we then expanded it. Um, 
we set up a niche website, martialartsaccounts.com. I doubt it's still going now, but we set up a niche website that was focused solely on the martial arts schools. We wrote in the trade journals. So I got to know the trade journals, wrote articles, um, got to know the key industry influencers. So that included the people who run the associations of martial arts school owners. That included the national governing bodies. That included the direct debit collection agencies. And it included the, um, the manufacturers and wholesalers of equipment. So got to know them, visited them, become friends with them and got referrals that way. We'd also ask our clients for referrals. Um, the next thing, and I think this is an important point, there's a lot of talk about niching from a marketing perspective. And yes, you need to market your niche, but you also have to service your niche. There's no point having a niche if you can't deliver specifically for that niche. So we had to learn the workings of a business. So I just sat back and listened to a lot of school owners about what were the key revenue drivers in their business, um, you know, how many students could they train in a certain size location? So and I got to a point where when I was going to visit a school, I would be able to tell the demographics of the area just through driving through. And I would know whether they would work for a martial artist or not. I would know even simple things like where their dojo was in relation to a major A road. It sounds really simple when you say it, but you don't think of it as an accountant at first. Um, what is far more useful for me to know is the fact that people who live on the other side of that A road aren't going to go to that school. It just doesn't happen because yeah. human behavior, you don't drive around the road, turn back on yourself to go somewhere. Um, you know, we learned the radius that students come from when they're in. We learned the number of students per square footage, and all of this stuff. And it allowed us to have really intelligent conversations with our clients. So what I call true advisory, you know, their, their VAT and their tax and all of that stuff was irrelevant. Yeah. They actually, you know, the business owner didn't really care about it as long as they were um, forewarned and forearmed with what was coming. What they cared about was the fact that we could talk them through each year how to build their business, how to solidify their business, um, what other school owners are doing that they're not, um, where they could potentially find um, better suppliers for their kit, not, not just on price, but on... Um, those things that you can't really quantify with a number. So quality of kit and all of that stuff. Um, it was more important for us to be able to talk to them about the latest um, dojo management theories. Yeah, that was the stuff that they wanted from us. Yeah. Um, so that was the how. We got to know all of that stuff. Um, yeah. And then the second stage of it. So that that kind of gets you in the game. And most accountants in most niches, in honesty, only do 10% of that. They might write a couple of articles and do the marketing, but they don't truly embed themselves in the world of their client, uh, in my experience. The next stage of that is to close the door behind you. So that opens the door for you to become a no-brainer for any client. So, you know, we were charging average fees of two and a half, three grand for these school owners. And a good proportion of them are still clients of ours, even though we're not actively in that world. Um, we would charge two and a half, three grand when a local firm would charge them 500 quid. But, you know, the extra couple of grand's worth of business advice we were offering totally paid for itself several times over for them. Um, you know, the, the tax and the filing of the accounts and the cash flows and all of that stuff and putting them on the online accounting, that was a commodity, but we bought some real specialism. Once you're at that stage, you've then got to close the door. And that's... Um, so in the martial arts world, we did that through, I, I became a um, founding director of the Federated Body for Taekwondo. 
um, became a director of the national governing body and, and raised the Olympic funding for Taekwondo as well. Um, we, we got involved in the standards agency, which is not for profit. You know, we did loads of things that basically put a load of barriers to entry for other accounting firms so that nobody could come in and be the next martial artist's accountant. Yeah. And we did the same in franchising. We, you know, exactly the same in franchising. We worked out what we could offer. Um, there was also a bit of a technology play there as well. So we had to build our franchise dashboard and um, other tools that could go in. We um, ramped up, made a load of noise, and then we closed the door behind us. Fantastic. Yeah, no, I'm with you there, Carl. In terms of you know niching, it's it's so powerful, and there are there are many reservations that accounting firm owners have that you know if I niche, then I'm going to close the door on so many opportunities. But actually, you'll open the door on many others, and chances yeah. are that those others will be a lot more profitable profitable than the ones that you have. So this was a cut from an interview with Kai Reed. The interview went for over an hour, so there's a lot more gold to find. So this was Transform Your Profits, the second accounting podcast of the five we're going to go through. For more free content, videos, and resources, visit www.rezahuda.com. And if you haven't already, come and join the community in our Transform Your Profits Facebook group, where we support each other to build more successful, profitable, and impactful accounting firms. Podcast number three. Hello, and welcome to the CPA Australia podcast. Your weekly source for accounting, education, career and leadership discussion. The CPA podcast is run by CPA Australia. The hosts vary and usually work for CPA Australia or are partners with CPA Australia. My name is Eleanor Cassipedes and I'm the tax policy advisor here at CPA Australia. I am Jana Schmitz, technical advisor, assurance and emerging technologies at CPA Australia. I'm a director of Fenton Green, who has been in partnership with CPA Australia for many years. I'm Jackie Blondell, an editor within The Black Magazine. Different hosts with a different experience to us gives the podcast a different perspective, which is good. Here's a shortcut from a recent interview about e-invoicing. I think it's important, though, to cover, first of all, why e-invoicing will become more important in the future. Can you, can you um, elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I think, um, I, think I would like to um, also mention one thing, which is uh, to, to make people realize, so uh, we talk about e-invoicing system, e-invoicing platform, but really e-invoicing um, is actually a, a business network system. Um, so uh, when you run a business, I think the network is actually quite important because uh, you have your suppliers, you have your customers all join into networks and then connect with each other. With each other. Um, so, um, and also secondly, um, invoicing, as we know, is actually part of the digital transformation. Um, and digital transformation is like, it definitely is the trend in our society and business ecosystem. And here's a longer cut from an interview with Bernard Sold. Well, it's unprecedented in the sense that the generations in the workforce today uh, have not been confronted by anything even remotely uh, close to this scale. 
Um, the last thing, of course, was the uh, the recession of 91, 92 or so. And then people look back to the Second World War and the Great War, of course, and the uh, the Spanish flu. So in that sense, it is unprecedented to the majority uh, of people. But even when you go back in time, go back to, say, the Great War, the First World War, 1914 to 1918, which was immediately followed by the Spanish flu. Here are five years of global catastrophe. What actually happened in the following decade, in the 1920s? It was a period of great joy and revelation and liberation. The women's, the suffragette movement really blossomed at that time uh, in Europe. Uh, There was a change in fashion. Uh, Women became far more daring uh, in their fashion. Bearing their shoulders, apparently, was a big deal. Uh, Back then, the crazy dancers like the Charleston emerged. People wanted to celebrate life after the, the, the apocalypse of what went before. And during that decade, Australia absolutely boomed and blossomed high levels of overseas immigration, largely from Great Britain to Australia. People saw Australia as a refuge. So in a global calamity, Australia looks very attractive. And the same thing happened after the Second World War, that intercontinental migration of Greeks and Italians, people coming here. And a great entrepreneurial energy was unleashed in Australia. You look at someone like Dick Dusseldorp, a Dutch migrant who arrived here in the post-war era, and many others, of course, and Dick set up in 1958 Civil and Civic, which is now Lend-Lease. Frank Lowy did the same in the 1950s and set up Westfield. This is why you should have faith in Australia. We are seen in a global catastrophe, whether it's war or whether it's a pandemic, as a safe option. We have delivered exceptional results thus far in the lockdown, if we can maintain that. I think that we can look forward to the 2020s as an era of growth and opportunity and entrepreneurship and an opportunity to reset society and business. So these were two cups from the CPA Australia podcast. Thanks for listening to the CPA Australia podcast. For more information on today's episode, please visit the show notes at www.cpaaustralia.com.au forward slash podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. Podcast number four. Welcome to Growing Your Firm Podcast, the podcast for ambitious accounting professionals who are ready to accelerate their growth, presented by Jetpack Workflow. Growing Your Firm is a U.S. American podcast hosted by David Cristello, the CEO and founder of Jetpack Workflow. Hey, everybody. David Cristello here, founder and CEO of Jetpack Workflow and host of Growing Your Firm Podcast. David interviews accounting practices about how they run their practices, how they price their products, and in general, how they grow their firm. This moment in a firm owner's journey where they go from kind of initial traction, so they got the first set of clients, they have enough revenue to maybe cover their their own income, maybe they've even hired one or two people, but to kind of grow to the next level on the journey to seven figures or beyond seven figures, you have to shift and you have to gain new skills around systems development and process development and team management and accountability. How do you keep everybody accountable and how do you know what everybody's doing? And it's really a different skill set. Here's a cut 
from an interview with Theresa Slack, the co-principal of Financially Bookkeeping Solutions in Canada. Theresa and her sister have found a niche in e-commerce bookkeeping. So, you know, we started Financially. It was just Connie and me. Connie's my sister. So the two of us started Financially six years ago. And, you know, we grew very quick, quickly. I have a lot of sales and marketing background, went out, started networking, started growing, no problem. Five clients, 10 clients, 20 clients, 30 clients, 100 tax clients, a whole bunch of consulting clients. And then we realized, uh oh, I guess we better hire because we actually can't handle all this work that we've brought in. So we did. We hired three people. We hired junior staff, figured we could train them. They'll be good. No problem. Set their hourly rate. We thought, all right, now we can continue to grow. Well, <laughs> very quickly, we realized that was actually not the case. Um, the team needed quite a bit of training and support, and they were taking a very long time to do the work. And back then, um, we really didn't understand our own value. So we had a hard time with pricing, which we'll talk about later. So our prices were very, very low. We were paying our staff and there was nothing left. We, you know, Connie and I didn't get paid at all, zero. The staff got paid, the expenses and overhead got paid and that was it. So then we had the, the pleasure of meeting Mark. We went to the first QuickBooks Thrive conference in Toronto and chose a session on value pricing and met Mark. I had never heard of Mark Wickersham before. Maybe you have, but I hadn't. So I googled him and his website says that he's a profit improvement expert in the accounting community and he has written a number of books that are doing well on Amazon. We were blown away, honestly. <laughs> David, we left that conference going, oh my gosh, we've got this. We came up with our three packages. We had entry full and premium. We put a price to it. We contacted all of our clients. They were super excited. No problem. We got them all onto what we thought was value pricing, which was actually fixed pricing. And we thought, okay, perfect. We got this. We figured it out. Let's move on. Well, that actually was even worse because when we set those fixed prices, because we didn't understand our value, we didn't understand value pricing, we had monthly pricing, you know, $250 a month, $300 a month, $200 a month, and we thought that was good. Our staff, however, we were paying them hourly. So what ended up happening is now that we had the client on a fixed price, we were actually paying our bookkeepers more than we were collecting from our clients because those junior bookkeepers were taking, you know, five to eight hours to do work that Connie and I would have done in three. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And that was our own fault. We hired the wrong people. We made lots, lots of mistakes along our entrepreneurial journey. So then we thought, okay, we need, we need to get better at this. We started stalking Mark, actually. We went to all of his free stuff because there was no money. <laughs> and this is Mark Wickersham for everybody listening. Mark so yeah. We'll link up because we've had him on the show and we'll do some yeah. link ups with him. So Yeah, so for sure. He we attended all of his free stuff, got a little bit better, our pricing went up a little bit more, but we still were just inching through. And we were still not making any money. Connie and I were not making anything. And it came to the point where we thought, all right, what are we gonna do? Do we just shut her down? go get jobs, try, you know, start another business, do something else, or are we going to invest our own money and time into this 
so that we can get better at what we're doing. And I'm very happy to say we chose to invest our own time and money. And we did three really important things, actually four. First thing we did, we um, fired our staff. We went back to just Connie and I. We reconnected with all of our clients, rebuilt those relationships. So that was the first thing we did. Then we hired Mark Wickersham and we joined his Value Price Academy so that we could actually become great at valuing ourselves, our services and our pricing. So we got Mark. Then we also uh, joined the Pure Bookkeeping. So we are uh, licensees of the Pure Bookkeeping system. And to make all of these systems work, we invested in Jetpack. So those are the four things that we did. And I can honestly tell you, doing those four things is what turned our business around from failing to where we are today. So I'm very happy that we, we made those investments and we were able to turn ourselves around. Teresa also mentions the Pure Bookkeeping system and I'm sure you have heard of the EMIS by Michael Gerber. So the Pure Bookkeeping system is putting those ideas into practice for bookkeeping and accounting firms. So it is a system of best practice operating procedures that you receive help to adopt when you join. At where you're at now from a pricing perspective. So kind of pre-entering the world of value pricing, you were charging, maybe the average client was paying you, what, $300 a month? Yeah, I'd say $300 would have been the average. Yeah, $300 a month. What's the average client paying you now? Between seven and 900. Growing Your Firm is an interview-based podcast, just like text talks in a normal episode. So, of course, the episodes depend on the speaker. And, of course, some topics are more relevant to your particular circumstances than others. But all up, Growing Your Firm is really worth checking out. Thanks for checking out this episode of Growing Your Firm presented by Jetpack Workflow. If you like the episode, be sure to leave a review. And if you want to stay up to date on all future episodes, be sure to subscribe below. Thank you so much. Podcast number five. Hey there, firm leaders. I'm Ryan Lozanis, and you're listening to the Future Firm Accounting Podcast. The Future Firm Accounting Podcast is the fifth and last accounting podcast for 2021. The place where you get one actionable lesson each episode. The Future Firm Accounting Podcast, a bit of an awkward name. The Future Firm Accounting Podcast is quiet, calm, and incredibly concise, packed with great advice. To help you fast track the growth of a modern, scalable firm that supports your ideal lifestyle. While the first four accounting podcasts we went through are interview-based, this podcast is just a scripted monologue, but very, very to the point. Hey there, firm leaders. I'm Ryan Lozanis. The host is Ryan Lozanis, an innovative technologist and accountant based in Montreal in Canada, or as the French Canadians say, Montreal au Canada. So this is a Canadian podcast. Hope you're doing well. On my end, we're deep in another lockdown here in Montreal. The episodes are only five to ten minutes long, but each of them well worth re-listening again and again to really capture everything. Today I want to talk about the flavor of the month in accounting, which is automation. Here's Ryan in the episode titled, How much automation does your firm need? This is at the tip of every firm owner's tongue when it comes to priorities at their firm. 
Most think that if they could just implement all of the latest and greatest technology, that they'll have the perfect firm and all of their problems will be solved. But in this episode, I want to push back a bit on the overemphasis being placed on technology automation as the key to your firm's success. Don't get me wrong, I absolutely love technology. It's one of the biggest reasons why I stuck around in accounting so long. There's a ton of innovation happening right now in the space and lots of cool things on the horizon that will transform our profession. This is why I'm here. But I also think that smaller accounting firms are placing too much importance and focus on using technology to solve all the problems in their firm. And in fact, this is distracting them from some of the other things that will move the needle more in their business. A few weeks back, I had posted something brief on my LinkedIn that received a lot of views, and I wanted to expand on that here today. My post read this, there's too much emphasis on apps to create a scalable accounting firm and not enough emphasis on things like a defined business model with a defined customer base, productized services, and written mapped out processes. Automation, technology, and apps should come into play to optimize the business once the basics have been ironed out. So let's expand on this. First, let's look at why people want to automate in the first place. There's probably a few reasons. You want things to go smoother, you wanna grow faster, you wanna do more with less, you wanna save time, and maybe you want some more freedom. These are all valid reasons for automation but technology won't help you get there unless you have a well thought out and properly designed business model without you having clear processes in place and without your clients all having some kind of semblance. Automation is just not going to get you to where you wanna go without those three things. That's because automation by definition is the technology by which a process is performed with minimal human assistance and to remove the human aspect of things, you need proper structure and standardization first. So if we look at the things that have to be in place before you automate, first, I talk about having a defined business model with a defined customer base. What do you specifically do and who are you specifically for? Who you accept in your firm makes a big difference when it comes to automation. The more focused, the better. You don't necessarily need to focus on a vertical, but you certainly need to focus on an audience that has similar needs. Second, if your clients have very similar needs, then you can productize what you do and turn your offer into something that's delivered systematically on a repeatable basis. And third, because things can be delivered on a systematic basis, you can then map out your processes in a step-by-step -step fashion. Once you have those pieces in place, by all means, go crazy trying to automate because now you have a model that's going to allow for it. But before that, you will really only be able to take advantage of basic levels of automation. Things like bank feeds and zero, for instance, are things you can take advantage of without having much of what I just spoke about in place. But if you wanna do more complex levels of automation, using things like Zapier to automate 20-step processes, for example, you need some semblance in your firm first. The other thing I see is firms focusing on automation when they don't have much volume. This usually happens with a more startup-oriented firm or ones that have been stagnant over the years. If you don't have much volume, then who cares about automation? I do think you should have core technology in place, but you certainly don't need to go down the rabbit hole on automation, and you definitely don't need to be thinking about automation until you have a pipeline of leads coming through the door. Basically, you do not need a million apps in place just yet. 
Here, you might wanna focus on your marketing first. Things might be a bit more manual for your existing work, but additional automation is not gonna be the thing that moves the needle in your business at that point. There are likely bigger things you could work on that will have a bigger impact. So back to the question of this episode, how much automation does your firm need? Well, it really depends on what stage your firm is at. If you don't have the proper fundamentals in place, you only need basic levels of automation because without those fundamentals established, achieving more complex levels of automation will make your head spin. If automation is a goal, then get clear on who you're for, what you offer, and the way you offer it first. The more narrow your focus, the more automated you can become. If you have little volume happening in your business, then you don't really need much automation right now. You need some core pieces of technology and a marketing plan that brings in business. When marketing starts coming in and once there's some volume, then you can focus on automation. And I'll end on this. Don't get distracted by all the shiny objects out there. There's a lot. Focus on the fundamentals. And when you have that in place, the sky is the limit. And that was already the entire episode. The actual content is less than six minutes. And I find what Ryan says so true. I feel like underlying every word. Please subscribe to it in your app and re-listen to this episode. You just heard it is so full of insights. So this was the last of the five accounting podcasts. Let's venture further now beyond accounting and tax. So that's all for today. Thanks a lot for joining me. And remember, if you're looking for more tips like this, be sure to join my weekly newsletter where I send an email out to over 3,000 firm leaders who also want to design and implement an online scalable firm that supports their ideal lifestyle. You can go ahead and sign up at www.futurefirm.co slash newsletter. Thanks a lot for tuning in and see you next time. Podcast number six. Hello, this is The Money. So now we leave the accounting podcast behind and venture beyond accounting into the wider world of economics, politics and society. The Money is an ABC podcast. This is an ABC podcast. Superbly presented by Richard Aidy. I'm Richard Aidy. In each episode, it covers a wide range of interesting topics in a very interesting way. Hello. Hi, how are you going? Um, I'm looking for the 350 Nature Glow palette. 350 Nature Glow, right here. Fantastic. Yeah, 350. Is there oh, anything else you need to get today as well? That's lovely. Oh, no worries. Thank you. This is me. You can't hear me, but I'm here in the shop at the weekend. We're at level three on the Christmas shopping dial, so only five more to go. Too much money is being spent. But here's the thing. No cash, not a single node will be used today. It's all on the card or on the phone. Cash has almost disappeared. So what's going on? We'll get to that a bit later. Hello, I'm Richard Aidy. This is The Money. Let's start with the dollar. It's up. As we go to air, it's at 75 cents. So one Aussie dollar buys 75 cents US. And this matters. So to find out how and why the dollar's where it's at, I spoke to Diana Messina, senior economist at AMP Capital. Well, the Australian dollar is what you would call a pro-cyclical type of currency, which ultimately just means when there's an improvement in global growth, which usually means that commodity prices are high, the Aussie dollar tends to perform better in that environment. And what we have going on at the moment is prices for 
key commodities that Australia exports, particularly iron ore, at extremely high levels. And the global growth outlook is looking better because there's a lot of optimism around a vaccine. That's putting upward pressure on the Aussie dollar. I remember it was really low back in March, sort of at the, the beginning and, of the coronavirus crisis, and nobody knew anything. And each episode doesn't just cover one topic, but several, each interesting, concise and well-researched. It's worth remembering we've come through pandemics before. The last one on this scale was 100 years ago, the Spanish flu. So what can we learn by looking back? John Tang is an economist at the University of Melbourne. Uh, if you look at the numbers, it doesn't actually seem that the 1919-1920 epidemic had a big impact on the Australian economy. Uh, real GDP, like it decreased about 5.5% between the 1919-1920 fiscal years, but then it rebounded the following year and it continued to increase for the next five. If you look at unemployment, it did take a bit of a hit. It went from about 3.4% to about 58 and then another smaller increase the following year. Uh, but then it started to fall a bit for the next two years. I'm actually uh, a bit surprised, John, because I think it killed, am I right in thinking it's about 15,000 people, something like that, which was a lot in a country that was a lot smaller than it is now and had, of course, just gone through a war. Right. So if we think of this in absolute numbers, 15,000, that's much larger than what we're experiencing with coronavirus today. But 15,000 out of a population of about 5 million, it, like even if it did disproportionately hit maybe working age adults, it still wasn't that much of a hit compared to the war itself, where you just had many men leave the country and, and the economy had to adapt to that labor shortage. Right. Okay. So it obviously had an effect in terms of morbidity and mortality. And it did affect the economy, but just not as much in a way as what we're going through now. No, no. Even if the mortality impact was fairly severe in 1919, 1920, uh, it was much less so for the economy, especially if you look at the years that followed. If you compare how we went, how Australia went in that 1919, 1920 epidemic, how did we compare to other countries? Because this was a disease that killed, well, estimates vary, but uh, 20 million people is, is, the, is the kind of low watermark on that. And I've seen 50 million even above that. So compared to other countries, Australia did fairly well. Uh, the US with the same you know, amount of land, but of course a much larger population, like about 675,000 Americans died uh, from the Spanish flu, like orders of magnitude more than what Australia had experienced. It sounds like it was a global pandemic, but like everything, much worse in some places than others. And perhaps a bit like COVID now, we dodged the worst of it. That's right. One reason may be that Australia was and still is geographically remote. The Money Podcast is really well done, but the best thing is that it is Australian. It looks at issues in Australia and global developments affecting Australia. It looks at the world from down under through our eyes and not American or British. My local shops have really taken off since this whole thing started in March. It's a six-minute walk from my house to these shops, and it's a 40-second drive. 
don't ask me how I know that. But what I do know is that it's much busier all the time. The cafes are busier, supermarkets busier, the small supermarket, the newsagent even seems busier, the bakery's busier, and we've got a pharmacy, two hairdressers, a couple of restaurants and a wine shop. It's actually not the biggest shopping local shopping centre, but it has taken off over the last six or seven months. Hi. Hello. Can I get two large skinny flat whites to take away, please? Anything else? No, thank you. Eight dollars. Now, it's all very well me noticing things at the shops. Lucinda Hartley has some numbers. She's the co-founder of Neighbourlytics, which uses mobile and social data to see where people are spending their time. That's really worth knowing for businesses and governments. And the short version is, we're staying close to home. Neighbourhoods are becoming more local, but the, at the same time, they're becoming more digital. And by that, I don't just mean working from home. I mean online gyms, doing click and collect from your local library, uh, hairdressers doing YouTube tutorials, like... All of our local businesses and services and experiences have been through this digital transformation in the last six months, which is which is likely to have a really profound long-term impact on our places. But it also shows up in the digital record by increased volumes of data and interactions. What does local mean? When you say local, there's sort of different scales for local, aren't there? Yeah. For, for Neighbourlytics, local really means what you have access to within a 20-minute walk of your home or local centre. So we mean hyper-local. These were just some cuts to pick your interest. Please give the money a try. That's it for this week. Thanks to producer Belinda Summer and sound engineer Tim Jenkins. I'm Richard Aidy. Podcast number seven. This is Planet Money from NPR. Planet Money is an excellent podcast that gives you easy-to-understand answers to questions around economics, finances, money and their impacts on the world we live in. Does your economy seem sluggish in the morning? Are your interest rates feeling abnormally low? Your economy might be exhibiting symptoms of a -a once-in-a-lifetime recession. For help understanding this condition, Ask your podcast provider about a twice-weekly dose of Planet Money, NPR's economics podcast. It is well-researched, well-scripted, and superbly produced with sound effects, music beds, and many different voices that make it interesting to listen. Planet Money might be habit-forming. The economy can be perplexing. Planet Money can help. Let me play you cuts from two different episodes. Here's the start of the episode titled The Stolen Company. In 2002, Tim Damaris noticed that sales at his company were slipping, and he couldn't figure out why. Tim was working for a small company in Indiana called Abro. They make things that handy people keep in their garage. You know, like epoxy glue, spark plugs, engine degreaser. And Tim's job was to travel the world going anywhere he could sell Abro products. I was allowed to go as long as I could, as long as we brought back business. And we felt like buccaneers going to these emerging markets, Congo and uh, and, and then Russia, and, uh, Ghana, Cameroon. Maybe you've never heard of Abro. 
I certainly hadn't. And that's because none of the stuff it makes actually gets sold in the U.S. But it's really popular in a lot of other places. Places where made in America carries extra cachet. Today, when you refer to a roll of masking tape in Pakistan, they simply ask, can you get me a roll of Abro? We're kind of a big deal in Pakistan. <laughs> Anyways, Tim couldn't figure this out. Why were his sales slipping? And then he heard from a customer who had seen some counterfeit Abro products in China. Tim gets on a plane to investigate. His first stop is this trade show that everyone in his business goes to. The Canton Trade Fair is one of the largest trade fairs in the world. His first day there, Tim's walking around this massive exhibition hall, hunting for clues. And then suddenly he freezes. I peered around the corner, hiding really behind a booth. And I looked around and I was literally shocked to see what I was in front of me. In front of Tim is a booth that looks to be an Abro booth. But the thing is, Abro never paid for a booth at this fair. It's the same logo, same colors, same products, same everything. Only no one inside the booth actually worked at Abro. They were passing out Abro business cards, Abro catalogs with all our products in it to my Abro customers that were visiting. So it was total confusion. Oh, my God. They were telling people they were the Abro subsidiary in China. Tim knows Avro doesn't have a subsidiary in China, so he goes straight to the show officials to complain. He provides documents showing Avro has the real trademark registration for Avro in China. The officials confirm this with authorities in Beijing, and then boom, they agree. They will raid the fake Avro booth with Tim. We had police personnel. There were military personnel because— There were the military guys in this entourage to raid— the booth? Absolutely, absolutely. Wow. Because the military is part of these trade shows in China because they own some of the companies. So I'm marching. I mean, leading my army of men. I feel like a general going to battle. I mean, it was kind of scary, but it's kind of exciting. Tim gets to the booth and gets right up in the face of the man who seems to be in charge of the operation. I said, the party's over. Mr. Abro is here. But then the Chinese guy turns to him and says very calmly, no, you're the fake. And he reaches into a briefcase and pulls out a set of documents that he says shows he is the one who owns the Abro trademark in China. Everyone just sort of looks around at each other, stunned. And the show officials start backing off. They don't know who to believe here. But Tim? Tim knows something they don't know. He points to a four-foot-tall poster inside the booth. It's a blown-up photograph of a woman who appears on every package of Abro Epoxy Glue. I said to the owner, who is that woman you have in the photo? He said, that's just a Western model. At that moment, I lost it. I just lost it. I said, that is not a Western model. That is my wife. And at that time, I just ripped out my wallet. I pulled out a picture of my wife I've been carrying for the last three years and threw it on the table in front of the owner of the uh, company. But he said, first you steal our corporate identity, and now you're stealing my wife. And here's the start of the episode titled After the Plug. We're going to start today's show on a bustling fall day in Sicily, in a port town called Messina. The year is 1347, and ships are coming into the harbor from all around the Mediterranean. They're loaded up with spices and silk from Asia, some are filled with grain. And in addition to the spices and the silk and the grain, these ships are also carrying a very different kind of cargo, a kind of stowaway. That would be the rat, and in particular, the black rat, 
or ratus ratus, as it is called scientifically, and it's actually uh, rather cute. Frank Snowden is a medical historian at Yale, and Frank says that on that cute little ratus ratus is another stowaway. Which is uh, the flea. And inside the gut of this little flea is a bacteria called Yersinia pestis, a bacteria that is in the process of unleashing a global catastrophe. Yersinia pestis is really one of the most awful bacteria that you can uh, imagine ever having to face. Awful because Yersinia pestis is what causes the bubonic plague. And it starts right there, inside the gut of the flea, where it immediately reproduces like crazy. And it does so in such profusion that it clogs the digestive system of the poor flea, and the flea begins to die of starvation. And so it becomes more and more compelled to bite. Bite the rats, who then get their rat version of this awful disease. Some of the rats manage to jump ship in Messina, share their fleas with the local Sicilian rats, and bring the plague to Europe. And so one of the signs of bubonic plague is a great die-off of rats. So if I were walking down the street of an Italian city during the plague, I might just see piles of dead rats in the street? Yes, you would see rats staggering about the streets. And then finally, the fleas and the bacteria inside the fleas find their way to humans. As soon as you're bitten, the bacteria Yersinia pestis finds the nearest lymph node in your body. That's the neck, armpits, or groin, and makes copy after copy of itself. Your lymph node fills with pus and expands into this giant ball, sometimes as big as an orange. That's the titular bubo that gives the bubonic plague its name. The bubos were so painful that people actually uh, committed suicide to escape the pain. The bubonic plague usually kills in a matter of days, and it spreads really quickly. This version of the plague gets so bad that it comes to be known as the Black Death. It's like a wildfire that finds timber. People start dying en masse. So you have this collapse of law and order in the city, a collapse of the economy of the city. You have this terrible spectacle of bodies everywhere and what do you do with them? And so you begin to get plague pits where the bodies are thrown. And it feels to people that the world is coming to an end, perhaps. And how many people would have died in a, in a city? Now, the plague would besiege, let's say, Messina for weeks and weeks, and by the time the flames die away to embers, perhaps half the population of the city would have perished. Half of the city died? Yes. In fact, uh, half the population of Europe as a whole died during the Black Death. Hello, and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Keith Romer. And I'm Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi. The Black Death was one of the greatest catastrophes in human history. It destroyed lives and families and left behind a wasteland. But there's this other side of the Black Death that we don't usually talk about, a sort of silver lining. As the world was being destroyed, it was also being remade. From the ashes of the Black Death rose an entirely new world. Today on the show, that silver lining. How the Black Death, the pandemic of all pandemics, shook up feudal hierarchies, improved the lives of medieval Europeans, and 
completely transformed the economy. Are you hooked yet? Planet Money is a really good podcast. Please give it a try. Found any silver linings in giant world catastrophes? Drop us a line. We are planetmoney at npr.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Planet Money. Podcast number eight. This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. We would expect to see some rather concerning numbers for a while. I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. We know how important it is for the parliament to meet. Isolation, testing. Being bored is much better than being in intensive care. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. This is an Australian podcast about Australian politics. The Party Room is fast, interesting, highly relevant and superbly presented by Patricia Carvel is the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing. And I'm Fran Kelly from RN Breakfast. But it is never just Patricia and Fran alone. They always invite high-profile guests who give short, concise insights into the latest developments. We're going to be joined soon by Peter Harcher, who's the political and international editor for The Age and the City Morning Herald. A political reporter with The Guardian, Amy Ramikas, is joining us in the party room. For ABC South Australia, Nick Harmson. Before Patricia and Fran interview their guests, they often have a discussion about the latest developments among themselves. And they'll cut their losses. That's that's yeah. what I reckon. Because essentially, you can look at it a different way. It's not about IR. It's it c- could turn into an electoral trap for the government because you know this is not their natural territory. It is Labor's. Anthony Albanese has had really nothing to fight with all year in this pandemic year, and this would give Labor a platform that draws the Labor movement together. They've been pretty divided uh, within the political party and and the broader Labor movement. Um, you know, on a number of points through this year, this would draw them together and would give them something to fight for, a talismanic you know, issue. That's the last thing Scott Morrison wants. He does not want that. The episodes pick up current developments that, of course, constantly change. So the content has a very short shelf life. So rather than going back in episodes, just listen to the party room as it comes out. But so it was difficult to choose an excerpt that will not be outdated within a few weeks. But hopefully this one is a good pick. So the larger problem is that uh, we walked into this situation um, we shouldn't have allowed ourselves to become so vulnerable to any one country, much less an autocracy that uh, is, has been uh, outwardly hostile to us for at least three years now. So that was our, our imprudence. And now China's forcing our exporters to diversify. So that's happening. Um, and in the meantime, what can you do about it? Well, okay, at the company level, it's hard, but you know, I see the barley industry is already adjusted and sending shipments elsewhere. The coal industry is trying to adjust, sending shipments elsewhere. Other commodities are less uh, easily tradable. Um, the federal government between now and probably, I'm guessing, February, March next year, there will be submissions to the cabinet on measures that the federal government can take specifically to help uh, sectors that are hit. They can't offer them direct subsidies because that's WTO inconsistent. And Australia wants to make sure it abides by the rules scrupulously. But 
there's a dozen other things that a government can do. But, uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, but, but Peter, they can do all those things, but there's no replacing a market as huge as China. No. I think it's like $200 billion worth of Australian exports into China. So, yes, we must diversify. We should have done it earlier, probably started that earlier. But, you know, the reason is, the reason we're selling there is because those markets are so huge. And the OECD has pointed out already that, you know, tensions with China has the potential to reduce significantly our per capita GDP. So th that's clear. Uh, what's co also clear is China's, you know, prepared to use trade to um, basically beat us into submission, that, that's clear too. So what now can we do about it? We can't, we can do all those things you're talking about. We can build the global coalition of democracies. We can look at diversifying markets, but we need an ongoing trade relationship with China. Kevin Rudd's advice this week on 7.30 was, you know, our politicians, our political leaders need to um, do more and talk less. What, what possible, what's going on behind the scenes by our government to try and get Chinese ministers to take their calls because we had another one, Dan Tian, uh, again this week saying, you know, he's not being able to c contact his, his Chinese counterpart either. So, you know, there seems to be no inroads being made here. If you have clients exporting or importing or with businesses closely linked to government policies, well, most of us do that nowadays, then you really should give the party room a try. I think you will get hooked as I did. Well, that's it for the party room for today, but, but more than just today, for 2020. I can't believe that, PK. Finished for the year. What a year it's been. You've been locked up for most of it. The party room got chucked out for some of it because there was so much more important information to be getting to people rather than just what's going on with politics. You know, it was all about health and responses and... Survival. Survival, basically. It's been quite a year. Look, I, hopefully it's been a useful source of political insight in what really has been an unprecedented year there. I got that back in. We started with it, ending with it, unprecedented. Unprecedented, our word of the year. We're both taking a break. Um, we're both off for a break soon, a longish break over summer, but we will be back. We will be back in your feed early next year. Yeah, that's right. So when Parliament's back, we will be back to giving you all of the analysis that you expect with the best guests we can possibly invite on. I hope you have an excellent summer break. I hope that it's not as miserable as last year's or as miserable as 2020. I'm sorry to call it miserable, but the bushfires and then the coronavirus pandemic, uh, it, it has not been fun. So let's hope that the summer is virus-free and enjoyable. See you, yeah. Fran. Yeah, everybody, have a happy Christmas. Have a great summer. See you, PK. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Podcast number nine. This podcast, Who the Hell is Hamish, is brought to you by the Australian newspaper. This is the last podcast in our list that has to do with money in some shape or form. An Australian podcast that will show you how easy it is to fall prey when you are vulnerable. Superbly presented by Greg Bearup. I'm Greg Bearup. When you start listening, you will wonder how on earth this podcast is connected in any way to the work you do. It's hard to know just where to begin with this story, and so we'll come in at the end, with a love story between Tracy and Max. How could this possibly relate to you and your clients? But it does, it 100% does, and you will shortly see why and how. I was working full time. I was living in freshwater. 
I had been uh, separated from my husband for over a year. I had been dating a little bit, but not a lot. And I, uh, I met him through a dating app online. As before, we put this sound where we made a cut. She's a single mum, aged in her early 40s. In March 2016, Tracy swiped right on the profile of a man called Max Tavita. He would turn out to be the man of her dreams. He would be the great love affair of her life. That was until Hamish crashed into them. Hamish would destroy everything Tracy and Max had built. That's what Hamish did. He wrecked people's lives. But we'll start at the start, in those happier times, before Hamish. We started texting and uh, he's um, quite witty and we had good banter. I always find humour appealing. After their digital dalliance, the pair exchanged phone numbers. Early one evening in April 2016, Tracy hailed a cab for the long ride down from the northern beaches into the city. She decided to give him a call. They hit it off straight away. He was charming and a great conversationalist, interested in what she had to say. They spoke for a good 40 minutes as her cab wound down the coast over the Sydney Harbour Bridge and past the sails of the Sydney Opera House. Uh, He said he worked for a group called the Family Office and I didn't know what that was but he spoke a lot about hedge funds and he told me it was a group that managed money for wealthy families. He was generally just very interested in what I had to say and, you know, he was attentive, I I guess you could say. Good conversationalist. Great conversationalist. Knew a lot about things, you know, sort of knew a bit about everything, I guess you could say. There was something vulnerable about Max that appealed to Tracy. He was willing to express his feelings, his weaknesses. She liked his sensitivity, his openness. I remember clearly on that conversation, our very first conversation, I think I must have asked about his parents and he said, oh, well, they're um, my, my parents aren't alive, they're dead. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. And he said, oh, that's okay. You know, it happened a long time ago. And I said, oh, what happened? And he said um, they, they died in a, um, an aeroplane accident. I was in the aeroplane. Uh, they were both there. They both died. And I was brought up an orphan from the age of six. So I was put into Stuart House in Curl Curl. And then after that, I was uh, shuffled around uh, a, a series of different foster homes. So I never really had a real family. He had told me that he had worked in the World Trade Centre and um, him and a friend were going down there to meet somebody that they had worked with. They were meeting up with a woman and um, they were walking down there and they were underneath the Trade Centre when it got hit and then they had to get out of there. So in the building? uh, Underneath the building. Uh, The woman that they were meeting was in the building. Mm -hmm. Apparently she died uh, and he had to you know, get out of where he, where he was when it happened. And I said, what did it sound like? And he, you know, he, he actually did the sound with his, with his voice and his mouth. And, you know, he did the whole thing and he said it was like the most incredible sound. You didn't know what was happening. And he went into details around what people were doing, what he heard, the screams, the, you know, just so much detail. What was he saying? What, what, what were people doing? Oh, well, he was saying people were mostly in disbelief. You didn't know what had happened. You just heard this big noise. You knew you had to get out of there. They were thinking about their friend. He was talking in detail about all the people that he had worked with who worked on different levels, what levels they worked on, 
what departments of businesses they worked for, you know, so much detail. And yeah, that was that was the cup of tea. And I remember at the end he said, bloody hell, we've, you know, we've spoken a lot about me today. You know, I haven't asked you any questions. And it, and it seemed really authentic. It was also around this time that Max said he was about to invest in a big deal in the US. He said, I've got, I've got some knowledge of something that's happening in America and it's between two families and something big's going to happen and there's an opportunity to invest. And um, my sister and her husband and um, are investing in it and it wasn't until she said to me, why don't you talk to Trace about this? It might be an opportunity for Trace. And um, that he sort of started to think that he would talk to me about it and he said things like, you know, I don't normally mix business with personal relationships and... And what did you think about this at this stage, Tracy? I guess I felt that he knew what he was talking about. He certainly seemed extremely knowledgeable on the situation. I'd listened to countless conversations over the months um, between him, his boss, his um, back office team, uh, he had sent me emails that he apparently had written. Uh, he he was um, apparently responsible for writing a report that went out to all of his investors every week and it was a very, very long report with graphs and tables and um, the state of the market and shares and what people are investing in and where he thinks the opportunities are. And He began talking to Tracy about investing her superannuation and her savings. He said, you know, I'd love for you to be financially secure and financially independent. I feel like I could do so much better for you with that money than what those thieves are doing. And It all appeared legit. She signed over more than 300000 for him to invest. She trusted him. Theirs was a relationship built on mutual respect. They opened up to each other about their deepest, darkest secrets. He told her everything. In July 2017, they flew separately to Byron Bay. Tracy had to give a presentation on the Gold Coast. He helped her prepare. They looked at a house they thought they might buy. They walked along the beach, holding hands, talking about a future together, a future plump with promise. They caught different flights back to Sydney. Tracy said she'd never felt happier. This is when things turned weird, really weird. The best account Tracy gave of this discombobulating experience was recorded on my phone the first time I met her. Um, so we've been in Byron for the weekend. I flew back on the Sunday night. He flew back on the Monday. I spoke to him uh, on the Monday night at about 8 o'clock and he goes to bed early or went to bed early, so he's like, I'm off to bed. In the morning, I think I woke up and I texted him and uh, he didn't respond, didn't respond. His phone was still off. You know, I started to get worried. Googling like his brother-in-law on LinkedIn, trying to find a number or an email address or some way to contact. I was, you know, I was checking my phone throughout the night, still hadn't heard from him, called him, went straight to voicemail, looking for people that he said he went surfing with. It's very unlike him. I was really worried. So I called Bondi Police. And I told them, you know, you need to go and check this out for me. I'm really worried. They asked me if he had a history of um, mental health. No, everything's fine. We've just been in Byron Bay. Everything's great. Bondi police were off doing that. And then I'd gotten a call from a girlfriend of mine, Kath, and she had said, how are you going? And I said, oh, 
bit worried about Max. I haven't heard from him in 24 hours. And she said, Trace, I've just seen something online and I think it's him. And I just immediately thought that he had died. And I was like, oh my God, he, he's dead, he's dead. He's had a surfing accident, he's dead. What's happened? He's dead, he's dead. So she sent me a link and it was the footage of him being arrested the day before with his head um, blurred out. Then I called back uh, Bondi police and said, look, he hasn't died, he's been arrested. They said, yes, we know that, but well, the name of the person that you gave us that lives at that address is not the person that lives there. I said, yeah, it is, because I've been going out with him for the last 15, 16 months. And they said, it's not his name and it's not his date of birth. And I said, well, what is his name? They said, well, we can't tell you. Then I managed to get hold of his brother-in-law, who I'd met, Chris, and he had texted me back saying, Hi, Tracy, um, please call me um, urgently uh, on this number, Chris. And in brackets, he wrote, Hamish's brother-in-law. And I stopped and I called him and I said, Chris, who the fuck is Hamish? He goes, what do you mean? Who is Hamish? And he goes, Hamish McLaren or Hamish Watson, whatever his last name was. And I said, well, who, who's Max? Who's Max Tavita? Like, what's going on? Can you now see why this is relevant to you and your clients? When you have an SMSF, you have more control, but you're also a lot more vulnerable to dubious advisors. But it doesn't just have to be an SMSF. It can also be money or wealth in general. Life has ups and downs for all of us. And sometimes you or I or anybody of us, sometimes you're vulnerable, even though you might have money, assets or super, etc. And if you then meet the wrong people, you might not see through the stories and promises that are slowly wrapped around you. At least I can very much imagine that I might not in that situation. So I urge you to listen to who the hell is Hamish? It might give you some really good insights into something we usually don't come across until it is too late. The mind and workings behind financial fraud. Who the Hell is Hamish is brought to you by the Australian newspaper. It was written and presented by me, Greg Berop, and produced by Nicholas Adams Jasbar. The executive producer is Eric George. And podcast number 10. This is an ABC podcast. And this last podcast, ABC Comedy Presents, has nothing to do with your work. But when you go through tough times, not trauma, of course, just tough times, then having a good laugh can really lift you up. Hi there, Golden Cobras. Welcome to ABC Comedy Presents, a podcast series devoted to stand-up comedy. Each month, a new stand-up show drops into your feed like some kind of taxpayer-funded comedy present. Each episode is introduced by the comedian whose show you're going to hear. And this month, you get me, David Quirk, performing my show, Cowboy Mouth. So here's an excerpt from a show by David Quirk in episode 7 of ABC Comedy Presents. So, recorded live at Stupid Old Studios in Melbourne, please welcome to the pod, me, DQ. And as before, we added this sound where we did some cuts because we, of course, we cut it heavily together. This happened uh, nine months ago. I just moved into a new house in Melbourne. Uh, now, the house I need you to picture, if you could, it's a one-storey townhouse. There's uh, houses either side divided by fences, etc. Now, 
Yeah, you can picture it. Good. Now, it was, a, it was a Sunday afternoon. It was a warm day, but it wasn't a pleasant day. It was very windy, I remember. I remember that. Now, my housemate was out. Uh, I'd been in the house for about a week. Now, I don't, it's furnished by my housemate. I don't own much of the stuff in the house, but I was looking for something at this moment. I remember I was looking in the kitchen for something. I was opening drawers. I can't remember what I was looking for. Maybe it was blue tack. I got no clue, okay? But <laughs> I just opened up this drawer and I cannot remember what I was looking for, but I hear from the front door, which is wide open apart from a screen door, I hear a female voice go, hello, and I sprung up. And of course I did. And that is the moment, the exact moment that I forgot or would soon forget whatever I was looking for in that drawer, okay? <laughs> I turn my non-threatening silhouette down my end of the hallway, show it off, yeah, and just instinctively start walking towards this stranger. I realise it's the first visitor I've had at the house. It's very exciting. I get all the way down to the front door. We both stay quiet. I open the screen door and I say, yeah, hello, how are you? And she says, hi, sorry, um, this is a bit embarrassing. Um, I, I live there. I live next door. Um, my name's Leilani, she said. And I thought, that's an unusual name, Leilani. But I say, um, oh, uh, lovely to meet you, Leilani. Um, that's a Canadian name, isn't it? She says, no. Fine. Um, how, how, how can I help? And she said, well, it's a bit embarrassing. What, what happened is I was just putting some rubbish in the bin out the front of the house and the door's blown shut. I'm locked out. I obviously don't have my keys. But I know that the back door of my house is open. I was just wondering that if you maybe had a stepladder or something like that, maybe I could just jump the fence and get back inside. So Leilani and I walk through the hallway, through the kitchen, into the backyard. I turn to the laundry area. We've done this once or twice since moving in, like I said. And I see, the first thing I see next to the washing machine is, you already know, don't you? It's a bloody stepladder. That's right. <laughs> moving across the yard towards the fence. More small talk, things like, I really was surprised we had a stepladder. She, she says, yeah, me too. Which makes no sense, but we carry on nonetheless, yeah? I open up the ladder next to the fence and stand back and I look at this fence sort of for the first time. It's six, seven feet high, yeah? And I think to myself, I probably wouldn't need a ladder or anything to... I could probably scale that if I had to, yeah? And then I look back at her and without sort of judging her age, gender, body type or anything like that, I hope I'm not out of line with what I'm about to say. I'm actually trying to be very helpful. I just say, do you, do you want me to do it for you? Do you want me to pop over? Right, and it was perfect because she clearly can't be fucked. And no sooner am I up this ladder, over the fence, than in a stranger's backyard. Yeah? Have you got me so far, folks? Yeah? I announce it. I'm over! Which she probably knows. Because of her eyes. Now. I glance around the yard before moving inside. The door is wide open as she says it would be. Inside, kitchen. There seem to be... No pets. Uh, this place is sort of bigger than mine somehow. It's sort of more open, maybe. I don't know how that could be. It's certainly nicer. Anyway, no time for jealousy quirk. It's time, <laughs> it's time to get to the very difficult task of walking through her, her hallway, up the end of the house, and opening the door and letting her in, isn't it? Yeah? That old thing. But I don't. <laughs> so what happens in this moment is something that's happened to me maybe two or 15 times <laughs> in my adult life. Um, in the words of Pink Floyd, I had a momentary lapse of reason. <laughs> Leilani just dissolved. <laughs> and I started walking around her house like an art gallery. <laughs> just looking into rooms, yeah. 
the DVD collection. That's pretty cool. Yeah, this place gets great natural light. Look at that. It's cool. Kids or a kid must live here. It's bloody shit everywhere. Now, the bathroom, quite fancy. Uh, it's like a bloody uh, black and white tiles, really lovely, with a claw-footed bath. Very nice. The shower, I've never seen anything quite like it in a private sort of residence. It's wide open. Okay. Uh, no shower curtain or screen. I've never seen I'm common, you know what I mean? <laughs> And I think, without doubt, where I lost most of my time was the, the, in the lounge room, the book collection. Like, wow, someone in this house is writing to rock and roll like me. Brilliant range of music biographies. Like, I've read a bunch of these, but amazing. She even, it's nerdy. She even has the one I've been looking for for the last year and a half. The, the biography, of, it's a slightly obscure reference. Warren Zevon. Um, and then I hear a knock at the door. <laughs> oh, someone's at the door, I think. And that's when I just snapped and... What the... F how long have I... It was the most bizarre feeling. I, I have no... It's probably a few minutes, but... I wonder when I jumped the fence, did I trip and hit my head or something? But I, I, I know I didn't. I know I didn't. I feel like I'm dreaming, or I've been drugged or tricked or something. And it was at, it was at this moment, hearing that knock, that I made my first conscious decision, okay? And it might not have been the right one. <laughs> Instead of just, you know, hot-footing it to the front door and opening it, obviously, and just telling Lelani that I'm sorry and that I bloody, I don't know, needed to go to the toilet or something, but, you know, fuck, as if I'd need to poo a wee <laughs> in the brief time I've been away from home, you know? <laughs> oh, sorry, Lelani, had an upset tum-tum, had to do a poop, yeah. You know, I could have just ran out the door and said, oh, I love your house, and ran past her. That would have been sort of creepy, but valid, I guess. Instead of doing anything like that, I panic, okay? I thought Quirky can sort this. You can sort this with humour, charm, and a bit of old-fashioned panic, okay? <laughs> I feel for my phone, but of course I've left that at home, and to be fair, there's no Google search for help with this unique issue, <laughs> is there? What would you even type in? And it feels like someone else is in my body as I move down the hallway towards the front door. I move past the first bedroom and the second, stopping at the third bedroom. I haven't been down this far in the house yet. I know somehow that it's his and her bedroom. Yeah, I don't know why. She's knocked at least once more by this time. I turn to the door, I open it. It's like I've been there before. It's like it's my mother's, my parents' room or something. Very strange feeling. I look at the back of the door and see something I feel like I know is going to be there. There's a red bathrobe hanging on a hanger, okay? I kick my shoes off. <laughs> take my shirt off and my pants, which is the one thing people struggle to believe with this story. I put the robe on, move towards the front door, rubbing my eyes like I'd just woken up was the idea. I thought, this is funny, fortune favours the brave, let's do this, okay? I thought, this is good. I opened the door and I said, um, I said, hello? And Leilani said, is everything okay? I said, yeah, sorry, I just, um, I just woke up. How can I help? And then she said, I'm sorry, I don't understand. I said, would you like to come in? With a bit of glee like that. Which I thought was, would you like to come in? And when I did that, what she did, she looked at me, took a small step back, checked the number of the house, okay? Looked around the doorframe for some reason, looked behind her at this sort of planter box of succulents that she probably planted, right? Looked across the street, then back at me, and I have never seen a more confused person. It was fascinating. And she said, sure. But she wasn't sure. 
I said, please wipe your feet, which I thought was funny. Okay. And she got just past me, stopped and turned back and looked at me and went, what are you doing? I said, nothing. And she looked at me harder and said, is that my husband's robe? I said, I presume so, yeah. And she said, I don't know what you're doing, but I think you should leave. I said, I agree with you. <laughs> and more or less in silence, I just started to remove this robe, handing it to her, standing there in these new jocks I just bought for you in the, the American Apparel closing down sale. I handed her the robe and said, I'm sorry, I, th I thought you'd laugh. Then she said, do I look like I'm laughing? I said, good comedy subjective. <laughs> and I could, just, I could just feel the words bubbling in my throat. The words, could I just jump past you and grab my clothes, okay? But they would not leave my mouth. It was just so tense. And I, I must, there must have been sub, subconscious thought. Like I must have thought, oh, I live next door, this will all blow over. There was no thought at the time. But I literally, just standing there, said, I'm sorry, Leilani, nice to meet you, which is a weird thing to add. And I shut the door and left. In my jocks and socks, true story, I walked the short distance back to my house where I came to see that my front door was locked. <laughs> Either she'd done it or the wind, I still don't know. So I went to the house on the other side of my house. What choice did I have? You find that funny? If you didn't, please still give ABC Comedy Presents a try because comedy is a personal thing. What I find funny, you might find plain boring. There is a different show in different comedian each month. So if you don't really click with something this month, chances are you will with a different episode and a different comedian. So please give ABC Comedy Presents a try when you need a lift up. And please listen to David's Quirk's show again in episode 7 since there are a lot of very funny side stories and twists and turns that I cut out. Welcome back. Hopefully some of these podcasts grabbed you and it will entice you to listen more, to give you food for thought and action. Of course, action. In the end, it all comes down to how much we really walk the walk after talking the talk. Looking back, a big thank you to Class for over three years now. You have been helpful in so many ways. Thank you for sponsoring Text Talks. And also a big thank you to Jen Solomon and Borna Miolovic. You make all this happen. And of course, a huge thank you to our speakers who so freely shared their knowledge and expertise this year. We all learned so much from you. Really appreciate it. I won't give you any reflections about 2020. Much smarter minds than mine are doing this much better than I ever could. I just hope that you're okay, have a great break and start the new year with new energy, hope and ideas. My big resolution for Text Talks in 2021 is just audio quality. It is embarrassing that after three years, I still struggle with audio quality the way I do. I did make a big push to get this sorted this time last year. I bought a brand new AT2020 mic with a Scarlett Focusrite audio interface, but I just somehow couldn't make this fancy setup work for me. So I used it for a few episodes, but then went back to my old USB mics, one a trust mic and one a Blue Yeti blackout mic. So didn't really solve this issue. So over the holidays, I need to have a fresh go at this one. Sort out the mic, 
build a soundbox and then hopefully in 2021 I finally give you the audio quality you deserve. Have a wonderful break. Thank you for coming along in this crazy ride this year and for all your emails and questions. Thank you for listening and see you next year. Have a great start of 2021.